Amy and I went to a couple of estate sales here recently. The first one we went to Buddy Emmons estate sale. Great pedal steel player. And we went over to his house and got to walk through. It's kind of neat to be able to see someone's house whose music you've listened to all your life. I ended up buying a cassette player. Uh, it's a, one of those kinds flat. They load the tape in the top, little push buttons. I figured maybe I'd make some demos on it or something. It'd be fun to have Buddy Emmons' cassette player. Then we also bought a rocking chair and we'd put it on the porch and been sitting back holding the cat and just rocking back and forth on Buddy Emmons' rocking chair. That feels pretty all right. But we heard a few days ago about Bill Monroe estate sale. We're selling a lot of his stuff. So we went out, it's outside of town, got to go out to by his farm, and man, it was crazy. In the first half hour, there were just a ton of people in a very small space, and uh, Jason from Muddy Roots said that it seemed like it was a bluegrass mosh pit. I think he was right. Everything was a little too expensive for my blood. There were a few things that I wanted. There were a couple certificates. One was from the state of Indiana, commemorating Bill's greatness. And uh, the other was from Vincennes University, which is in Indiana. And I wanted to buy those, but they were too expensive. Another item that I really would have liked to have had was an autographed picture from Minnesota Fats. And it said, to my good friend Bill Monroe. I'd love to know the story behind that. There has to be a great story there. One of the more historically important items I think that they had, there were quite a few, but one that caught my eye was a handwritten letter from President Ronald Reagan to Bill Monroe. And it said a lot of nice things. I think it was on presidential stationery. It said, to my good friend, you know, you're a great American. You've always been an inspiration. I've always loved your music, and I'm glad to call you a friend. It made me feel pretty good thinking about this kid from Rosine, Kentucky, who grew up in complete poverty, that one day he'd pick up a mandolin, write some songs, and that would lead to him getting a handwritten letter from the President of the United States. friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's a creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Mike Bubb. Mike is a five-time IBMA Bass Player of the Year. He's a great all-around musician, and he's just a wonderful guy to be around. And you can follow Mike on Twitter at twitter.com slash oldbubby. There's a video on YouTube of Bill Monroe playing a Telecaster at what looks like a party. And in the background, I could see Mike Bubb. When I moved to Nashville, I'd see him around town. He's a really good guy. And once I got to know him a tiny bit, 
I asked him about this video because I became a little bit obsessed with it at one time. It's this party where Bill Monroe picks up a Telecaster. It's just something you'd never, ever would expect to see. It's like, it's like seeing Abraham Lincoln pushing a lawnmower. Mike was nice enough to play along, and he told a lot of great stories about the pickup gigs he got to do with Bill Monroe. But I really enjoyed this. I had a great time, and Mike's just a wonderful guy to be around. Here's Mike Bubb. I was uh, fortunate enough to get to play with Bill quite a bit off and on with some of the guys in his band would sub their jobs out. So some of the early things I did was just playing banjo with him. His banjo player, Dana Cup, lives in Detroit uh, area. And he would commute down every weekend to play with Bill, either to get on the bus or to play the Opry. But during the week, he couldn't come down because he had a business to run. So they used to have these matinee shows at the Opryland Park, a Grand Ole Opry matinee on Tuesdays and Thursdays, where it'd be a good excuse to get out of the heat, get in some air conditioning, and then you'd see like a miniature Grand Ole Opry show. And it would be uh, the, the staff band would be there, uh, or maybe a scaled-down version of the staff band. And maybe two, three, or four artists would do a 15-minute segment. So you get like an hour Opry show. And I would go and play those with Bill uh, from time to time on banjo. And uh, that was really fun because it wasn't on the radio or anything. It's kind of loose. And uh, I remember one time, the tune of the – the tune du jour that he was playing for a while was this tune called Tombstone Junction. And I was had learned it on a banjo and uh, we're rehearsing it in the dressing room. And, you know, one thing that you don't want to be around Bill is timid because he will, he would key in on that, you know, he'd find any kind of weakness you might have. And then that he would <laughs> zero in on that. So I came in there blazing on the banjo on this tune and he goes, hold it, stop right there. You're not playing that right. You're not playing that right. And I said, well, I'm not. And this is how in tune he was with his music was that, you know, I was sort of skirting around the melody. I was sort of playing playing it a little bit, but I wasn't getting the right notes in there. And he pulled that out of all the banjo notes that were coming at him that I'm not playing the right melody. He stopped the entire band. He said, hold it. You're not playing it right. And finally, uh, Tater Tate, who's playing the fiddle, he says, I think he wants you to put this in there. And, and he showed me that no, the three or four or five notes that I was missing. And it was just like, oh, I got it now. But it was just, uh, it was so embarrassing, you know, to think that I, you know, the new guy or whatever. From playing the banjo, I also played bass too. I was working with Del McCurry at the time. So uh, when we weren't working, sometimes I would get a call from T- Tater to play bass for him. And the very first time I went on the road with him, I played bass with him. I lived right around the corner from his office, which is where he left from, uh, where the bus would be. So Tater called me and he said, could you could you go this weekend with the old man? I, I, my back is out. I cannot ride on that bus. And Tater was probably, in, at that time, in his 70s. And, you know, he probably had to co-drive the bus. And it was just a chore. And he loved to smoke cigarettes. You know, he smoked those little brown, thin cigarettes, you know, and, and uh, probably couldn't do that on the bus or whatever. So he, he was just kind of maybe burned out. I don't know. So anyway, I said, absolutely, I'll go. So first thing you have to do is you have to have a hat to play with Bill. So luckily this is in the wintertime, and that's when they wear the felt hats. They wear the straw hats in the summer, felt in the winter. So 
I told Jimmy Campbell, who was playing fiddle with him, I said, I don't have a hat. He goes, I oh, don't worry about it. There's a couple extras at the office there. And uh, I thought, you know, I don't know that they're going to fit this big ass head of mine. So <laughs> he had an extra one. I tried it and I was too small. I said, you know what? I'm just going to go buy one. So I went and bought a resist tall silver belly ranch hat, you know, uh, rancher's style hat. It was about $140. That's just about what I was getting paid to play with him. And I didn't have any money at the time anyway. Yeah, I was broke, but uh, I wanted to have a good hat. So anyway, I get over the bus, and I'm like the first one there, except for him. He's there an hour early, and he's playing solitaire on the table in the, in the bus. I said, Bill, my name is Mike Bubb. I said, I, I play with Del McCurry. And I said, Taters asked me to come play bass for him this weekend. He's, he's down in the back or something, can't make the trip. And he just kind of looked up at me, and he says, uh, do you have a hat? And I said, yes, sir, I do. He goes, oh, that'll be fine. And that's all he said to me. <laughs> and now next to the thing is the two of us are sitting in the bus. Just He's playing solitaire, and I'm just waiting for somebody to show up. You know, <laughs> It's awkward silence. Yeah, just awkward silence, you know, no conversation. You know, did you get any rain at your place today? No, 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 sir. It was, you know, just you couldn't have a conversation, but it was difficult. Anyway, that was one of my first trips with him. So I made up several trips with him playing bass and uh, just filling in. Eventually, I went and bought a suit. I went, first, my first was with him. My, my suit didn't match what the rest of the guys were wearing. They all had a matching suit. So I thought, well, if I just go buy a dark navy suit, I'll at least kind of blend in better than wearing a taupe suit, you know, against what everybody else is wearing. So I made a trip with him. We went all the way. We played a couple shows like New Jersey and New York and Vermont. So it was a couple of days out. Now, Bill had this beautiful Stetson hat that was a, a, a 20X Beaver Stetson, white Stetson hat. And on the inside band, it had uh, embossed in there, it said, uh, Bill Monroe, father of bluegrass, uh, commemorating 50 years on the Grand Ole Opry. And this was a gift to him from somebody, I think Tootie Williams, this guy down in Texas, an old friend of his, gave him this beautiful hat. So we're riding down the interstate. And if you've ever ridden on a Silver Eagle bus, they, they, they sort of float. They have this sort of, they don't have a hard suspension. They just sort of float up and down. So we're riding along and drinking coffee out of a styrofoam cup. And Bill's at the table looking out the window and riding. And I'm on a couch facing him on the side. And the, the hat is sitting next to me on my left. And I'm aware of the hat. I know I'm not going to sit on it. I know where it is. But I'm drinking this cup of coffee. I finished the coffee. And that's all that's left in the bottom of this little styrofoam cup is this little dot of coffee. This little tiny little dot that just is stuck in there or whatever. So all at the same time, I go to stand up in the bus, and I'm putting, reaching over the hat, putting this little cup in a cup holder at the end of the couch. And I go to stand up, and the bus hits like a dip in the road, and it does one of these things where it floats up and down, you know. And it's almost like a springboard, you know. Next thing you know, I kind of lose my balance. I lose the cup. The cup does a triple lindy, and it lands on the back brim of his hat. And that little tiny dot of coffee hit that white hat, and it just went, and it drank it up, and it looked like a big three-inch bruise on the back of that Stetson. And my heart sank. I mean, I was just like, oh, my God. And I get up, and I grab the hat. I'm trying to brush it off. Well, it's no use. It's already just soaked right in there. And I'm standing behind Bill, who's, you know, looking forward. He says, what have you done? What have you done to my hat? What have you done? And I said, Bill, 
And my heart just sank to my knees. I was just like, Bill, I'm so sorry. I said, I got a little dot of coffee on this hat and it just, let me see it. He looks at it. He looks at me and he looks at it again and he looks at me and he just shakes his head like, you idiot. You know, he didn't have to say anything. He just shook his head. And I was mortified. I was just, I couldn't believe I, such a rookie move. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the beginning of the trip. This happened, uh, if you go up 81 in Pennsylvania, there near uh, Cutstown or Charlottesville, up in that area, there's a brewery up there right on the side of the interstate. It's exactly where it happened. (laughs) I can tell you exactly where it happened. It used to be a uh, Stroh's Brewery. Now it's like a Miller Brewery, but you can see it from the interstate. So anyway, he had to keep going to Vermont. You know, so we'd stop and eat somewhere, and he'd put that hat up on the hat rack or whatever, and then he'd pull it down, and he'd look at the hat, and then he'd look at me, and he'd just shake his head. And uh, <laughs> so there used to be on 8th Avenue a guy, a place called Jew's Hats, J-U-S, or J-U apostrophe S. And Jew was this old uh, black guy who had been making hats in Nashville since he was uh, 10 or 12 years old. <clears throat> he had made hats for all the Opry people. You know, he made quality um, hats. And uh, so all the anybody that wore a hat would take it to him to get it fixed, cleaned, or repaired, or made, you know, make, get one made. So I told Bill, I said, Bill, I said, when we get back to Nashville, I said, if you'll allow me to take your hat, I'll take it down to Jews and get it cleaned and get it fixed up for you. He said, I'd really appreciate that. And I said, well, I'll do it. You know, so I had his hat after the trip and I put it in this paper bag, you know, and I took it down to Jews on 8th Avenue. I said, I said, you really have to help me out here. I said, I got Bill Monroe. You got the father's hat there? I said, yes, sir, I do. He said, let me see it. I said, well, I said, I got some coffee on it. And I said, you have to get this out. I said, you got to help me here. He said, let me see. Let me start working on that thing. And he starts steaming and brushing it and powdering it and all this stuff. And uh, he said, I believe I got that looking pretty good. He said, what do you think? I said, if you wouldn't mind working on that thing just a little bit more. I said, I want that thing to be clean. And uh, so he did a pretty good bang up job of it. You know, you can still see it, but it blended. He blended it in, you know, and uh and made it look pretty good. So I had the hat for a week, and I took it back to the Opry the next week. And I said, Bill, he said, do you have my hat? I said, yes, sir, I do. And I pulled the hat out, and he looked at it, and he said, that is really fine. I really appreciate that. And, and I said, I'm so happy that you're happy, you know, and I'm very sorry that this happened, you know. So about two weeks later, I go out with him again. The Bluegrass Boys, of course, you know, Bill, I don't think he ever learned my name. He always called me something different on stage, you know, Mike Pup. Mike, Mike, this Mike, Mike Bob, maybe, you know, just sort of blurted out. So the Bluegrass Boys would never let him forget who I was, you know. But Bill, you know, that's that sorry fellow that uh, got that coffee on your head a couple weeks ago. <laughs> you know, it's like, can we just let it go? I fixed the problem. Can we just let it go? And they would just, you know. And so finally he asked me, he said, uh, he said, how much did it cost to get my hat fixed? I said, Bill. Price was no object. Bill Price, why did you mention him? And I go, I didn't say Bill Price. Yes, you did. I said, no. He said, yes, you did. It just come out right there. I don't like that man. <laughs> and I was like, I can't win. <laughs> <laughs> that 
that particular, you're speaking of a video that's kind of viral on YouTube, and that's Bill Monroe playing Red Volkhart's Paisley Telecaster at a, at a jam session. That was probably in around 1992 or three, I would say, somewhere in there. At the time, Red Volkhart lived in Nashville, and he played seven nights a week in clubs here. And if, if you're not familiar with him, he's one of the greatest Telecaster stylists of all time. And he lives down in Austin, and he plays every night of the week down there or tours, you know. Anyway, uh, that the location of that was at a basement violin shop uh, that belonged to a guy named George Chestnut, who's since passed away. But he and his wife lived in this old house out in uh, uh, Donaldson, right near the airport. And he had a, a violin shop in the basement. And he would host. He knew all kinds of musicians. He mostly worked on violins, but he worked a little bit on guitars and this and that if he needed to. But he knew a lot of sort of the old school country musicians. Um, so he would have these jam sessions, you know, like a picking party at his house. But people that would come would be this variety of people, you know. And in this case was, uh, I remember being there and Glenn Duncan's in the video playing fiddle. There's a guy playing the keyboard. I don't know who he was, a piano player, uh, Red Volcard, of course. Um, I want to say Rufus Thibodeau might have been there. He played fiddle with uh, Jimmy C. Newman, but he, he also – you know, worked for years with George Jones in the 50s and Jimmy C back in the day down in Louisiana and played on a lot of George's records uh, and early records. And uh, but he was a real character, you know, and I remember he brought gumbo. He had like two big crock pots full of homemade gumbo that was just out of sight. Anyway, so you'd have this interesting mix of musicians. Anyway, Bill had this tune that he always was pitching to guitar players called the Ozark Rag. I don't know the source of the song. I don't know that if he, you know, at one time he played a lot of guitar in his band. When he first started, he would always play the Mule Skinner Blues. He played the intro on that on the guitar and then played rhythm on the recording. Didn't play the mandolin. And um, so he, he played a little guitar, at you know, back in the day too. So this might have been something that went that far back. And all of his tunes have a, you know, a regional or local name to them where he's inspired to write a tune. So... Who knows? He must have been in Missouri or something and come up with this song. But anyway, he says to Red Volkart, uh, he says, now I've got a number. If you'd recorded, it, it'd really hit the country. And he, you know, if there was never, if there was everybody more confident in their songs, there, there was nobody more confident than Bill Monroe. I mean, here he's telling this guy, if you learn this song, it is going to be a hit. And uh, so he says, if you'd, if you'd record it, if you'd learn it, it'd really hit the country. And you hear Red Volkart, who's got this real sort of deep voice. He says, let her rip. <laughs> and uh, he's ready for anything. And then you hear George Chestnut's wife in the background. She says, play it, Bill. Play it. Go ahead and play it. <laughs> well, the next thing you know, uh, he takes that as let's exchange instruments or whatever. So Red takes that Telecaster off and hands it to Bill Monroe, takes his hat off, puts his mandolin down, and straps on this red or pink Paisley Telecaster and proceeds to play this tune. And you can see me, I'm so excited that the video camera is on. And the video camera is mounted on this tripod, like over in the corner. And it's just filming the whole thing. It's not really anybody manning it or anything. It's just letting the tape roll. And I just couldn't believe that this thing is getting on tape. You know, it's like, Bill Monroe, this has never happened. I don't know that Bill Monroe probably ever put his hands on an electric guitar, ever. But the fact that it was a Paisley Telecaster at this jam session, and it was just magical, you know. 
So I told George Chestnut, I said, you got to give me a copy of that videotape. I got to have a copy of it. And so there was a couple of copies that got made. And just like any, you know, bus tape or viral tape, uh, you know, kind of like Winnebago Man, you know, it's like the, the, the quality gets worse and worse as it gets duplicated and sent around on VHS tape, which is what it was that back then. And somewhere along the line, somebody digitized it and got it up on YouTube and, uh, uh, it might have been my buddy Mike Armistead. I'm not sure, but uh, he's got a lot of vintage video stuff like that, and I think he put it up there. But it's neat that now it's out there for everybody to see. You know? Yeah, I don't know much about the guitar as far as the acquisition of it. It was a probably a 30s herringbone Martin guitar, and a lot of the guys in his band played it through the years. I know Jimmy Martin played it, and Lester Flatt might have played it a little bit. Um, a lot of the 60s guys played it later on. I know Jack Cook played on that guitar. And Did they play it just because it was a great guitar, because Bill wanted them to? Probably or? both. Probably both. Probably it was an excellent sounding guitar, and it was Bill's. And it had that, you know, connection, historical connection to the beginning of his music. And then I guess in the mid-60s, from what I was working with Peter Rowan, he told me that he was playing the guitar and parked somewhere downtown, and it just got lifted out of his car. Somebody stole it. And they've never seen it since. And it would seem like it would be a fairly easy guitar to locate or identify. It had a big pick guard on it, big elongated pick guard. You know, those kind of things are like works of art. You know, why, why would you steal something that you can't show anybody? You know, I've got this thing, but nobody can know and nobody can ever see it. Okay, well, great. You know, why? What's that going to do? And there's, you know, there's some rumors around that, that it's, 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 you know, this guy has it or this guy has it or it's there. But I don't know. I've never seen it. But I know. Later on, uh, November of 95 uh, was the last uh, tour that he did, and I was lucky enough to be on it. Um, just played a couple dates up in the Midwest. We do it to... I think we went up to Michigan and Chicago. And uh, so the last show was in Schaumburg, Illinois, in November of 95. He was getting pretty feeble at that time. Um, I think he'd had some health problems, and he might have been through a little cancer um, at that time or was getting ready to deal with some. But they had been encouraging him to just not go on the road anymore and just stay at home and play the Grand Ole Opry. And I think he had... Uh, they probably had already had the auction where they had auctioned off his property. And uh, the guy that ran the Opry um, at the time, anyway, he, he bought it and but under the stipulation that Bill could live out the rest of his days there. But it would be bought and paid for, and he didn't have to worry about the taxes or anything, you know, and he could stay at his home and just play the Opry. And uh, so he, he, this last trip that we were on, we did, I don't think we knew it was the last trip at the time. But um, it was in Schaumburg, Illinois. It was the last night, pouring down rain, and he didn't feel very good. He came out to the bus after the show. Usually he would go and sign autographs and meet people. You know, I got thinking about how many times he was probably photographed in his career. You know, you think about there's probably millions of pictures taken of him, and there's probably, you know, who knows how many actually exist or, or, in, or, or are in digital form now that you can see, but there's probably millions of photographs of this guy anyway he came out to the bus and uh, we were packing up the stuff and I, I remember going out there and just seeing 30 people standing in the rain outside the bus 
maybe some of them thinking or knowing that it might be the last time they see him, you know. And uh, so I went in the bus and I said, uh, I said, Bill, there's 30 or, 30 or 40 people out here uh, that want an autograph. And he was just sitting at the table and he said, uh, uh, go ahead and let them in. And he just sat there and people came in one and two at a time and got an autograph from him. Onto know, the tour bus. On the bus, standing in the rain, yeah. You know, he just compelled to love his fans. You know, he people would show up at these gigs and have known him for 60 years, been following him their entire lives, you know. It's amazing to have a career like that. And, you know, I don't think he ever it – it was never lost on him that people had stuck with him all through the hardships and the tough times of his career, you know, the ups and downs. And to some people, there was no other music but his music, I'm sure. You know, like that, that was it, Bill Monroe. It was probably about three or four months later he had a stroke and uh, went into a nursing home and never came out. You know. We went to visit him in the nursing home, played some music for him. It was probably sometime after Bean Blossom. He was sort of coherent. He, he, he was uh, just laying in bed, but we, we talked to him, you know, and you could tell he was understanding what we were saying and said we'd been to Bean Blossom and missed him up there, and a lot of people had missed him and wished that he had been there and then played some tunes for him. It was it was bittersweet, you know. This guy is tough as nails, tough as leather, you know. As Belvin Goins said, he must have been made out of cowhide or something as tough as he is. He's just, you know, he had a firm handshake, and his big thing was, you know, he'd get a hold of your hand and he'd just pull you across, you know, pull you off your feet. He loved to do that, and he'd say, you know, no man's ever knocked me down. There's another mythical story about him and Acuff. You know, they came here around the same time. Obviously, both huge egos and, and a lot of pride. But supposedly, they had it out. And they respected each other, you know. I think Acuff was probably a little bit more educated, but and he became a very controlling uh, partner in this town and the music business and Opry and everything else. But, uh, but he and Bill, had, I think they had a great respect for each other. They really almost came from the same cut from the same cloth, you know, but their music was very different. And so they didn't really have to compete too much with each other as far as, you know, that goes because they had a very distinct sound um, that Bill was always searching for, I think, musically. Did you get to go to his funeral? Oh, yeah, I was at his funeral. They had two, actually. They had one here at the Ryman, and it was pretty spectacular. You know, it was packed. And they had an open casket and... Uh, Bill had a penchant for always giving kids a quarter. He always carried change. He'd always, any kids that came around him, he'd give them a, a quarter. So when they had the viewing at the Ryman, people would come by and put a quarter in his casket. It was like it looked like a treasure chest. You know, it was just overflowing with all his coins. And then um, when he came out of the Ryman, they had the bagpipes, a whole bagpipe, you know, crew which to me is always very emotional at a, at a funeral when they start bringing out the bagpipes. You know, it's just powerful, you know. And uh, if you know anything about piping, I mean, those, the pipes are intended to intimidate the enemy, and they're the first guy out of the trenches, you know, in battle, and usually the first guy to die too. You know, they take him out first, but he's the first guy out. Everybody comes, follows out behind him. But uh, anyway, they brought – Bill out of the Ryman, and then he went straight from there to Rosine, where they 
might have been the next day where they had the thing in Rosine and there's a little church up there. It was way overflowing and they had speakers outside. I didn't make it on the inside, but we were there and uh, a lot of people were there. When we were standing outside and, and uh, Art Stamper, who's a great fiddle player from Louisville, uh, he was there. And he, he, he asked uh, somebody to come up to Art and said, Art, is, uh, is Jack Cook here today? Jack played bass for Ralph Stanley, but he also played guitar for, for Bill in the 50s. Record a lot of song, a lot of stuff with him. He said, uh, "He said, Art, is, is Jack Cook here today?" He goes, "You don't see the damn record table set up, do you?" Suey. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that kind of humor, you know. It's just so honest and funny. But uh, um, remember, I had I kept a lot of dirt, you know, like when they put them in the ground, you know, just started shoveling and throwing people throwing flowers in and and. Uh, course once the casket's in there there's going to be a lot of dirt that's not going to fit anymore because it's taking up the place so i had a, a big old clot of dirt for a long time from there uh, that i say i don't know what happened to it got gone somewhere but uh, uh it was pretty interesting you know and he's got a beautiful uh grave site there in rosine um and of course he's buried right next to his parents and a uh, funny story about that when when Dale McCurry told me when he when he joined Bill he didn't know all the verses to the songs he came as a banjo player who sang harmony on choruses he knew all these choruses and harmony parts but he got moved to the guitar because Bill Keith had kind of got here a few weeks before he did and kind of turned everybody's ear around on the banjo so he he put Dell on the guitar and Dell had to go to the library and write down the verses to all these songs. They had his records and he would listen in these little listening station and write the words down so he could learn the words of these songs. And so he's out singing with Bill one night and it's a song called uh, Memories of Mother and Dad. Mother's gone and not forgotten. And on dad's it says, we'll meet again someday. Well, Dell messed the words up and he said they got off stage and, and Bill said, I've never heard it sung like that before. <laughs> and that's all he said. He said he didn't say another word to me until they went to Rosine. They did had to go to Rosine on something, you know, take some livestock up there or something and, and visit the family or sisters up there. And anyway, he said, we went to that graveyard. And he said, now, he didn't tell me what I messed up. He wanted to show me. And he said, we went there. And he says, now, what does it say right there on that, on that stone? And right there. And that's what it says. And he goes, I never forgot it after that. He goes, but he wanted to show me. He had to show me how, what, what was right, you know. And that's just so old school, you know. You tell somebody, they may not go one in here and out the other. But if you show them, they may not ever forget, you know. So it's kind of a neat thing. It's great to have you over Well, here. it's great to be here. I'm a big fan of thanks for giving a damn. Oh. So I could personally say to you, thanks for giving a damn. <laughs> Thank you. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Mike for coming over to my living room and sharing some stories. 
You should follow Mike on Twitter at twitter.com slash oldbubby. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment, subscribe, and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.